chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I have a verse. Let's say I have several verses to read to all of those who are tired of Hebrews. I'm going to read the words of Peter. Just listen to them. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Peter stood in the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John, the Lord Jesus Christ and Moses and Elijah, and God spoke to him from heaven. Yet that same man said, We heard his voice when we stood with him and we saw his excellent glory and majesty. And we have also a more sure word of prophecy. That prophecy is in the Scripture. And ye do well that ye take heed unto it. For all those of you who are tired with Hebrews, you'll do well if you'll take heed. This is the word of prophecy. It's better than if God were speaking to you right now in the presence of heavenly and earthly witnesses. I believe that for some strange reason. Because I believe the Word of God. And if it tells us that, I believe it. You ever want to send chills down my back? Read me 2 Samuel, 2 Peter 1, 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. I have tried to remind you people of the context and I just read the context to you. It is superior to any imagination of any charismatic fool that would like to hear voices from heaven or that would like to go to a prayer tower to hear the will of God. The answer is in the Scriptures. And let's take heed to it this morning. Hebrews chapter 13. We have made our way through verse 7. Verse 7 dealt with the ministry. Two weeks ago I preached two messages on the ministry. This morning we want to move to verse 8. I have three points I want to make. I want to cover through verse 16. And I want to do it in one hour. So, let's go. Is that laughter appreciation for my efforts? Is that laughter mocking at my efforts? Hebrews 13 and verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Those of you who have been to grade school or who have learned it elsewhere, what does a sentence require to be a complete sentence? A verb. What does Hebrews 13, 8 not have? Interesting, isn't it? Well, if you ever write a letter and you have a sentence in it and it doesn't have a verb and someone calls your hand on it, 
Hebrews 13.8. There's no verb in Hebrews 13.8. There's no predicate. It's simply Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. You say, did God write his book with a sentence without a verb in it? Do I need, do I need to answer that question? You're looking at it, brethren, in Hebrews 13.8. How does Hebrews 13.8 fit into this 13th chapter? It fits by relating it to verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. What is the end of a minister's conversation? What is the end of a minister's life? What does a minister live for? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Whether it was an Old Testament minister called Moses, or an Old Testament minister called Aaron, or an Old Testament minister called Samuel, they live for Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And whether it was the Apostle Paul during the time of Reformation, or Jonathan Crosby in 1989, he lives for Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Notice 2 Timothy chapter 2. These words mean far more to me than they do to you, but I want you to see how Jesus Christ is the end of living for a minister. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me read the first four verses. Thou therefore, my son, one minister to another, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, is the reason a minister serves. And the exhortation is to look to Christ as my captain, who's chosen me to be a soldier. That is the end of my conversation. A minister's faith is to be followed because he is a soldier of Jesus Christ with greater duty, greater burdens, greater obligation, and greater condemnation upon him if he fails his calling. Second Timothy 2, 1-4 through 4. Endure hardness. There's hardness sometimes, and you pray for your pastor that he'll endure it and not crumble under it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. You don't even need to turn there. You know it. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the end of a minister's conversation because he's Christ's ambassador. 1 Corinthians 4.1. That's how verse 8 fits into the 13th chapter of Hebrews. But there's more to that statement than simply Jesus Christ is the captain that makes ministers. There are some things we should remember about Jesus Christ from this text. Let's first of all remember that Jesus Christ is a man. I feel that's one of the greatest errors made by 
those that hold the doctrine that we do regarding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are so careful to defend that Jesus Christ is God against the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, and others that we somehow lose Jesus Christ in the Godhead. Jesus Christ had better not be lost in the Godhead. Jesus Christ is a man. Jesus Christ is a descendant of David. God told David, I will never leave your throne without a king upon it. And he has kept his word, and he didn't put God upon the throne. He put a man upon the throne. And the man is the man Christ Jesus. You were saved by a man that hung and died on the cross of Calvary. God never hung on a cross, nor was God's side ever pierced. It was a man. He is the first fruits of them that slept. He is just like us in His physical body now that it is in heaven. When we're glorified, we'll be made like Him. The Godhead has not been changed. The Godhead is the same it has always been and always will be. The same yesterday, today, and forever. God the Highest, God the Word, and God the Holy Ghost. But there is another being in heaven. Another being. The Son of God. A man. Jesus of Nazareth. Glorified. Sitting at the right hand of God. Strictly considered, He is not equal to God. Because He is a man. Carefully considered, He is God because God took up unity with that man. But we must remember these differences, and they're not minor differences. Jesus Christ wasn't absorbed back into the Godhead as the second person in the Godhead. He is a man in heaven with a body that you'll be able to touch and see, and you'll never touch or see the body of God because God has no body but for that of Jesus Christ. When we read in Hebrews 13.8 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, what part of that being are we talking about? The divine nature, the Word of God that joined that human flesh. Mary had a baby, literally a baby. There was a placenta attached to it in the womb. She gave birth to it like every woman gives birth to a baby. It was wrapped in swaddling clothes to keep it warm like every baby is wrapped to keep it warm. That baby cried. That baby had diapers changed. That baby grew. That baby went through all of the processes of normal, natural, physical development. Don't ever forget that. I fear that so many don't understand who Jesus Christ is, but He's a man. And as a man, he is far more able to be a savior and a priest and a friend and a comforter than would God be alone. Listen, brethren, I, I've never read about anyone in the Word of God that found comfort in God. When God arrives in the scene, I find people falling on their faces as dead. I find people saying, Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a wicked man. I find men saying, Woe is me! 
for I am undone. I find men saying, and you know who I'm talking about, Isaiah, John, Peter, and now Job, I repent in dust and ashes, for now mine eye seeth thee. God is of such infinite holiness and so far transcends human existence that it's an intimidating picture. But Jesus Christ is a man. Jesus Christ is a man who is tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ grew. Now does that sound like a being that's the same yesterday, today, and forever? He grew in stature. He grew in wisdom. And He increased in favor with God and men. How much is a little baby able to please God? Does a little baby know how to use its tongue to praise God? Did the tongue of Jesus Christ sing, sing hymns while it was being rocked in a cradle? Or did it grow and increase in its ability through its normal, natural, physical development? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever in His divine nature, which is the Word of God. Jesus Christ was hungry in His human nature. Jesus Christ shed tears in His human nature. And at other times He rejoiced. Does that sound like a man that's the same yesterday, today, and forever? His human nature underwent a tremendous degree of flux and change. It was alive. It died. It came back to life. His divine nature is what never changes. His divine nature is that being, the Word of God that created all things in the beginning. And without Him was not anything made that was made. His divine nature is the nature that is able to claim immortality. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. We'll stick with the same book. Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Isn't that an amazing, complex, mysterious being that we have a man who is able to commiserate with our temptations and sufferings and self-denial, and yet who is the eternal God that we may rest upon an eternal refuge that never changes? The combined being of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most infinitely perfect gift to us that we could ever imagine. To have a man as our Savior, to have a king that we can look to as a man who lived a life exemplifying all that we should live, and yet he's ever, the everlasting God. All at the same time. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 11, speaking of the heavens and the earth, they shall perish, but thou remainest. They all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. They shall be changed, but thou art the same, and this is a proof of Jesus Christ's humanity, or of Jesus Christ's deity. His deity shall never change, but shall remain the same. Look at John chapter 8. This is rightly dividing, brethren, the word of truth. 
When you read about the Son of God, you must make divisions whether it is speaking of His deity, that is, His God part of His nature, His being, or the human part. Basic, simple divisions. John chapter 8, verse 56. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Now can you imagine a 32-year-old man standing there and saying, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, you know what those two words mean? Of a truth, it is certainly true, it is certainly true, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. I love his short answers to questions. Verily, verily, before Abraham was, I am. Come over to John chapter 3, where we have a very learned man, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Came to Jesus by night. This man was trained in theology. This man was trained in grammar. Let's see if he understood the 13th verse. We don't, we're not told how well he understood it, but I like the way Jesus laid on him a proof of his deity. Verse 13, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Now who was speaking with Nicodemus? The Son of Man. And what is the Son of Man saying of himself? I came down from heaven, and I am in heaven. If you'll check some of our new translations, you'll find them corrupting those verbs so that it will say that I was in heaven. A denial of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. You need to read your Bibles carefully. I came down, but I'm still there. How can he do that? Because God is omnipresent. God is immense. He fills heaven and earth. He can be in heaven and earth at the same time. And he was able to do that in John chapter 3 and verse 13. Look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Those that follow Jesus Christ are following the same God that those under the Old Testament followed. Can you see the force of that argument to a Hebrew? Jesus Christ is not some new apparition. Jesus Christ is not some temporary illusion for the Hebrews to follow. He is the same God that Moses and the Israelites followed under the Old Testament. James chapter 1, speaking of his immutability or the lack of change in God. Verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness. We've read there's no change with God. Here there's no variation with God. There's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Scripture sometimes tries to make a point that I hope you pick up. It doesn't simply say no turning. There isn't a shadow of turning. Do you ever try to convince someone of your truthfulness by saying, without a shadow of a doubt, 
you're emphasizing the lack of doubt in your conscience. No shadow of turning with God. There isn't even the least hint or indication of any turning in the Almighty. He does not change. Does that provide any comfort to God's people to have a Savior and a God that is eternal? Is there any value in knowing that? There's value in trying to figure it out. Have you ever sat and tried to figure how God got to the present hour if He never had a beginning? I've, I've wrestled with that since I was probably five years old. Now wait a minute. To get to this point in time, there has to be progress through time to get to this moment in time. And if there's progress through time, then you must be able to go back when that progress began. But there is no progress with God through time because God transcends time. Time, it, I'm, I can't explain it to you. Time is an element of our existence that God does not operate with. It is not simply that God went back in time forever. It's, it's greater than that. There is no time with God. His eternity. All you got to do is think about that for a few minutes and our little brains just fry and smoke curls out of the ears and we fall on our knees and say, Thy name, O Lord, is alone excellent in all the earth. <laughs> I love that God. He's older than I am. <laughs> By a long way. There was no Hebrew king that endured. There was no Hebrew priest that endured. There was no Jewish prophet that endured. But their God had not changed. New Testament, Old Testament, creation chapter of Genesis 1, Hebrews 13, it is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Only God has an independent claim to immortality. We shall be given immortality by the grace and mercy of God, but only God has an independent claim to it. Can you imagine the power, the self-existence of a being that is able to claim immortality for himself without power being granted to it by someone else? We're proud of ourselves that we're able to make stainless steel so that it will last longer. We're proud of ourselves we're able to take strawberries and preserve them. We're proud of ourselves that we're able to take horse scraps, inject them with sodium nitrate, and sell them as hot dogs that will last a while. We're proud of ourselves and being able to make things last, but only God is able to make Himself last forever. Didn't know that you've been eating horse scraps. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Just trying to keep your attention. I know you eat ballpark franks, right? cow scraps. Deuteronomy 32, 40. Don't eat those chicken franks either. All they are are feathers, feet, bones, beaks. Deuteronomy 32. This is an aspect of God's being that I adore. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 40. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. I live forever. God is able to claim eternality 
immortality, everlasting life, without beginning, without end, for himself. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Oh, we try to preserve everything, don't we? Facials. Preserve our face. Get rid of our wrinkles. To hold off old age. You know, all old ages is the beginning of death or the, the process of death. I try to teach my children that. What did you accomplish today, children, at devotions? They know the answer to that question from their father. I'm one day closer to dying. That's what I accomplished today. That's a thought that we need to think about from time to time. That is something you've done every day, and it's quite an accomplishment. You are one day closer to dying, and you add enough of those together, and you're dead. But we have a God that's different. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now unto the King eternal. We don't need to read anymore. Now unto the King eternal. What king has ever been eternal? He reigns 40 years and his son is now old enough to come in while he's sleeping and take a wet cloth and lay it over his face and suffocate him to death. Ever read about that in the Word of God? Watch your kids, fathers. I hope mine didn't laugh. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. And Paul, I don't blame you for writing and putting an amen in the middle of the chapter. Amen. The king eternal is immortal. That is a an aspect of existence that we don't have a comprehension of. Everything we know, every great father that we've loved, has passed on. Every grandfather that we respected and reverenced has died. Every king whose authority against whom, against which there was no rising up has passed on, has died. His kingdom has gone into the hands of others, but not with this king. Now unto the king eternal, immortal. May God bless us to grasp that king. Look at Deuteronomy 33 and verse 27. Deuteronomy 33 and verse 20. Oh, we got to get verse 26. You say we were just in Deuteronomy. Why'd you take us back to 1 Timothy and then back to Deuteronomy? Read Isaiah 28 this afternoon. Deuteronomy 33, verse 26. There was none like unto the God of Jeshurun. That's another name for Israel. Who rideth upon the heavens in thy help, and in His excellency on the sky. Now here's a description of that God of Jeshurun. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And He shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, Destroy them. Is there refuge in an eternal being? When we put our trust or confidence in any other being, there's that great fear of when that being loses some of its strength, when that being may lose interest in helping us. But in this being, there is no end to ability and there is no end to desire. That being keeps those everlasting arms underneath us. 
so that we are held up and supported by a being that has no end, the eternal nature of God, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Look at Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. I love to talk about death. I love to talk about dying. Brethren, there may be a day where some of you come to visit me when I'm laying in bed and I'm unable to raise my head. I remind my children, and this may sound sick to you, but I remind my children I've changed their diapers. There may be a day when they have to change mine because I'll not even have the ability nor power to control my own bowels. Think about it. And when you're in that state, you've lost all power. The power of memory fails you. The power of rational thinking fails you. The power of persuasion has failed you. And a child could come in and talk you into circles. You're going to feel helpless unless you have confidence in a being that you can look to with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, in power nor in love and affection. Isaiah 46 and verse 4. Let's get verse 3. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. And even to your old age I am he, and even to whore hairs will I carry you. I have made, and I will bear. Even I will carry, and will deliver you. Brethren, we're going to be there. Let's not wait for that day to arrive. Let's think about it now so that our minds are fixed. How many times did the psalmist say, my heart is fixed? Get it fixed now. We're trying to train our children so that their hearts are fixed now so that when they face temptation at 17, they're able to withstand it. Is your heart fixed now, trusting in the everlasting arms of an eternal God who alone hath immortality, so that at that day you face death and you have lost all power of mind and body, you're able to say, my heart is yet fixed, and he will carry me and he'll deliver me. You'll be there, Bob. You'll be there, Lorne. Are we ready for that day? We trust so much in ourselves today, don't we? Our ability to persuade, our ability to reason, our ability to remember, our physical power to do things, to accomplish, He's going to take that all away to where you must rely on Him and Him alone. It's a great comfort in a world of death and decay. And brethren, there's a day coming in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 53 when we ourselves shall put on incorruptibility. And we will be granted immortality. We shall be like the angels in heaven. And I look forward to that day. What God did for His people in the past, and I mean His people, I mean the Jews, Jesus Christ is able to do for them in the future. And so these poor Jews that had left, they thought the God of Israel for Jesus Christ, same being, just changed His form of worship. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's go to Hebrews 13 and verse 9. Hebrews 13 
and the ninth verse. Now here we have some verses that you may have found a little confusing, perplexing, raised a few questions. Let me read verses 9 through 14. Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them which have been occupied therein. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. These verses all go together, and they begin with the apostles' warning in verse 9, Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. Divers means many different. When you read in the Gospels, you'll read about people coming to Jesus Christ to be healed that had divers diseases. Many different diseases. Strange, in the Word of God, means new or unapproved. For instance, when you read in the Bible of a strange woman, a strange woman is not necessarily and is usually not a whore or a prostitute. A strange woman in the Bible is a woman that is new and unacceptable for you. Go read it. Go, go look up all the passages where the strange woman is described. Such as Proverbs chapter 7, where Solomon looked at his window and saw the young man going the way and passed by her house. This wasn't a harlot. This was a married woman because she went on to say the goodman has gone with a bag of money and he'll be gone for a while. Strange doctrines are doctrines unapproved, unconfirmed by the apostles and are new. And the doctrines under consideration right here in Hebrews 13.9 are doctrines of mixing Judaism with the gospel. Paul here is not giving a warning primarily. He's not giving a warning about baptism for the dead that the Mormons would be teaching in the 18 and 1900s. He's not here giving necessarily a warning about priestly celibacy of the Church of Rome that would be preached sometime later. What he's warning about are mixing grace and meats. Grace and meats, which we see from the rest of the ver verse. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. There were many new and strange, divers, different doctrines facing these Hebrews that tried to mix Judaism with Christianity. That is the warning of this passage. The Hebrews were vulnerable to any message that came that wanted to incorporate elements of the Old Testament religion back into the Gospel. Not only were they vulnerable to it, which means they were susceptible to listen to a doctrine like that, they were also exposed to it because there were a lot of false teachers, Jews primarily, 
that were traveling around trying to preach a mixture of the two religions. Do you remember Acts chapter 15 when it tells us that there were certain Pharisees which believed that came up from Jerusalem and taught the people, saying that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. There they were trying to mix salvation by Christ with circumcision. So there was the enemy, and they were Jews. And a Jew was already susceptible to that because a Jew loved circumcision. It was part of his national heritage. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Let's see if the Jews were vulnerable and exposed to doctrines mixing both. Galatians chapter 2 will even deal with an apostle. Verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, which is the message of grace, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners by the Gentiles, when he goes on to say, knowing that we're justified by the faith of Christ, not by the works of the law. Peter himself was a confused, was a hypocrite, dissembled himself, and influenced a number of other Jews to do the same by mixing grace and meats. How would you tell a Jew from a Gentile if you just got together for a few days in a city named Antioch? How would you know? What do people do together when they're together? They eat together. And all of a sudden, Peter's making this great difference between what he'll accept for lunch or not. When the hostess came out and asked him if he'd like to have a stacked ham sandwich or a roast beef sandwich, all of a sudden, it became roast beef instead of the stacked ham because he was making a difference here with meats and other aspects of the Jewish religion that set him apart from the Gentiles. And he was corrected by our brother Paul. Look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Titus chapter 1. Paul is giving the qualifications for a bishop in verses 5 through 9. And he says in verse 10, For there are many, that's divers, there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Many false teachers, diverse teachers, and they were Jews. They were of the circumcision. 
Notice in verse 14 what kind of doctrine they were teaching. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. Being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. These Jewish, Jewish teachers were spreading Jewish fables, trying to incorporate into the gospel aspects of the Jewish religion. And Paul said they need to be rebuked and, they, and Titus ought not to give heed to them nor any minister that he would ordain. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2 for the word meets. Colossians chapter 2. Verses 9 through 14 of Hebrews 13 are Paul taking a brief lapse back into his argument against these Hebrews going back to the Jews' religion. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward. Efforts would be made to beguile them of their reward in the gospel by incorporating Judaism into the gospel. Touch not, taste not, handle not, type self-denial to try to prove great humility and denial of one's own will in bringing back in the Old Testament. Look at Hebrews 9 and verse 10. Hebrews chapter 9. In these first few verses of the ninth chapter of Hebrews, Paul is describing the Old Testament form of worship with all of its ordinances. And he says in verse 10, which stood only in the ordinances of the Old Testament stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. But that's been done away now. So when we come over to Hebrews, the 13th chapter, be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines, for here is an explanation of what kind of doctrines Paul is primarily warning them against. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. Now that grace is the message of the New Testament gospel. It isn't so much the doctrine of grace as Calvinists would call it. Paul is not here exhorting them to preach the doctrines of grace and refute the doctrines of Arminianism. He isn't telling them to be Calvinists instead of Arminians. He's warning them to be established in grace so that the attraction of Jewish meats, drinks, holy days, and all the rest of that will not be able to affect them. Be not carried about because those Jews were so vulnerable to be carried about by hearing some new idea that in addition to Christ, we need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. What did Paul say in Galatians 5.4 about that idea? If you ever accept that idea, ye are fallen from grace. That is a proper understanding of the message of grace in the New Testament gospel. You've run back under the Old Testament law. 
It's not that you become an Arminian, per se. It's that you're back under the law instead of under the message of grace, which is the New Testament. Did the meats of the Old Testament profit anyone with any true profit? No. There was. We've just spent how many Sundays, brethren, learning that there was no profit in those meats, drinks, or offerings. And that's why Paul is saying, be established with grace. Keep the message of grace. Salvation is by grace, not by the works of the law. There are many errors that have afflicted the churches of Christ, but Paul is not specifically dealing with them here, nor primarily dealing with them here. If Paul were to preach to you this morning, he would say, be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines, and most likely, he might not even make reference to meats and drinks. He might make reference to some of the doctrines that we have to oppose in our day. Like baptism for the dead with the Mormons that I mentioned a few minutes ago. Like Peter's primacy as taught by the Church of Rome. Like premillennialism that we have to fight against. Those are battles that we have to fight today. But as we look at Hebrews 13, I want to give it its primary application to the Hebrews and then for us to realize from it practical benefits and application for ourselves. We should have our hearts established with grace because it is the, the, the point of departure on what we teach about salvation and what the rest of this city and nation teaches is grace. We believe in salvation by unconditional and free and sovereign grace. They teach, no matter what they call it, a system of salvation dependent and conditioned upon works. And if your heart's established with grace, then you'll not be carried about nor carried away by the meats of works of an altar, whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. What was the chief focal point of attention in the city of Jerusalem? But that altar where God would accept sacrifices. If you had a regenerate heart, did that altar mean anything to you? In Jerusalem, that was the place. God said, I will choose a place, one place, where I want you to come and worship me and offer your sacrifices for sin. And the apostle here is encouraging these Hebrews once again by saying, we have an altar. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. All those priests in their fancy robes that are bustling about the altar in Jerusalem, they can't even touch our altar. What is our altar under the New Testament? <clears throat> it is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He is altar, He is sacrifice, and He is priest. He's all of it wrapped up in one. Our sins were laid on Him. He was laid on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He took His blood into the holy place. He is priest, sacrifice, and altar all wrapped up in one. And any man still serving the altar in Jerusalem had no part with him. Because to serve the altar in Jerusalem meant denial of Christ. I've preached that so many times in this book. But look at Galatians chapter 5 to see it from Paul's own pen in another place. Galatians chapter 5. Anyone still bustling around the altar in Jerusalem had no interest in Christ 
they had no right to the altar of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice, propitiation, and redemption secured by Him for our sins. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Notice this is the difference between freedom and bondage, the difference between the Old Testament and the New. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, now many of you have been circumcised in this congregation, but that isn't the point. The point is if you've been circumcised for religious purposes, if you've been circumcised for spiritual gain, Christ shall profit you nothing. Because to admit that circumcision saves you is to deny Christ. Verse 3, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. If you're going to take part of it, you're bound to do it all. And that, Brethren, that is the yoke of bondage. Verse 1. Verse 4, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Christ has become of no effect. Anybody still looking to the altar in Jerusalem for any value lost out with Christ. And those priests that dedicated their lives to that altar had no right to the altar of Jesus Christ because they were perpetuating the wrong form of worship. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 10, we have an altar. Can you imagine Paul, a Hebrew, to the Hebrews, exhorting them to constancy in the Lord Jesus Christ? We have an altar. Don't worry, brethren. We do have an altar. You may not have that one that the priests celebrate sacrifices with, but we have an altar in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now he takes his argument further in verses 11 and 12. He's going to appeal to the law of the Jews and take his argument even further that anyone that has anything to do with that altar has nothing to do with Christ. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. How many times a year did they actually take blood into the holy place in the sanctuary? Once. It was the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat. After that blood was taken into the holy place and dabbed here and there and sprinkled on the mercy seat, what happened to those two animals? Were they offered on the altar? Did the priests get to save the best portions? Did the priests get to save the best portions of other sacrifices? What happened to these two animals? What happened to their hoofs? Dung, skin, hair. The Bible says very specifically all of those things taken together taken outside the camp and burned. Paul is arguing, I mean, where a Jew is going to get it deep inside. It's like a knife going in and being twisted. That's what he's doing to a Hebrew, and you've got to think about this for a second. The blood of atonement, which went into the sanctuary, was unique blood from all other blood that was shed in the nation of Israel, in that those bodies were burned outside the camp, and the priests that ministered around that altar could not partake of them. There was no participation in the body 
of the animals that whose blood was shed for atonement. Now, when Jesus Christ shed his blood, was it blood for atonement? Did they have any right to it? Even by their own law. Can you, can you see this point? By their own law, did they have a right? If they want to go by their law, Paul's using their law against them. I love someone who's able to take a man's arguments and turn them around and jab them with them. Paul's doing it. Their own law said, any sacrifice having to do with atonement cannot be touched by the priest. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Jesus Christ gave his blood in the same way for the same purpose that the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat typified. And that is for the sanctification and actual legal, literal atonement for his people. And where did he suffer? Outside the gate. Oh, there's been a, some controversy in the past. I remember hearing about it, about some men debating whether Jesus Christ died in the city of Jerusalem or outside the city of Jerusalem. He died where, brethren, with looking at one text? Outside the gate. Let's go to John chapter 19. You know I need a second witness. I'll limit it to two. John chapter 19. These are arguments raised by those men who've taken the heresy that our atonement was accomplished in the Garden of Gethsemane instead of on the cross. And therefore, they resort to arguments such as our redemption took place outside the gate. Calvary was inside the gate, but the garden was outside. Pitiful. Let's see where Calvary was. John 19, verse 17. And he, that is Jesus Christ, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. where they crucified him and two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Now if you're nigh to something, are you in that thing? You couldn't be in it. If you're nigh to it, nigh to it means you're not in it, but you're close by it. And the point was that Calvary was not too far away from Jerusalem so that people could come out of the city to see Jesus Christ hanging there and read that description. Hebrews 13. Wherefore, Jesus also, verse 12, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate in fulfillment of that very minute type of the Old Testament that the blood of atonement taken from those beasts was offered in the sanctuary, but the beasts themselves were burned outside the camp. So Jesus Christ took his blood into the holy place, offered it to God, but he himself suffered outside the camp. Now, Paul, as his manner is, is able to take one argument and spin another one off it. Watch verses 13 and 14 as he spins another argument off the fact that Jesus Christ suffered without the camp. 
Let us go forth, therefore, because Jesus Christ was suffered outside the camp, which argument was a completely different point that Paul had, since Jesus Christ suffered without the camp, let us go forth to him. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. What was the camp of Israel? Temple, altar, priest, everything. Where did Jesus Christ offer up his offering? Outside the camp. Where is he calling all of these Hebrews to go? Outside the camp. Don't worry about the camp. Jesus went outside of it to offer up his sacrifice to God. Let us join him outside that camp and not be bound to it. Bearing his reproach. Jesus Christ was despised and rejected of men. He was railed upon. He was reviled. He was accused of doing things by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Jesus Christ said, if they've done it to me and I'm your Lord and Master, they're certainly going to do it to the Lord and Master's servants. Verse 14, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. What city do you think is under consideration in the book called Hebrews? The city of Jerusalem, which was the place that God had chosen for worship under the old covenant. For here we have no continuing city. In fact, that city was going to continue for how much longer? About ten more years. And it would not continue again anything like what it was before. But we seek one to come. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 tells us that that Jerusalem is the heavenly Jerusalem which is above. Galatians chapter 4 tells us the Jerusalem which is on earth is in bondage with her children, but the Jerusalem which is above is the mother of us all. Two different Jerusalems. Paul is appealing to these Hebrews. Jesus went outside the camp. Let's go outside the camp and not worry about those in the camp. They don't even have a right to our altar. Jesus and Paul is further appealing by saying, we have a city that's above. Referring back to chapter 12, we have no continuing city here in this world. Verses 15 and 16. By Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, because of this great sacrifice He's made for us, because of sanctification He's obtained for us, because He went outside the camp for us, because He suffered reproach for us, by Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. I am quickly running out of time, but I wanted to spend some time on these points. I'll trust that your memories are not as poor as I... as sometimes I think they are, and that you'll remember verses that I've given to you in the past. But from this verse, I want you to get four points. First of all, our praise must be by the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 puts it this way. Speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want your praise to get above this ceiling? Then it must be done by and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because in Jesus Christ is all the fullness of the Godhead, all the wisdom of God, all the power of God is in Jesus Christ. 
and it is through Him that we gain access to the throne of God. And if you want to praise God and thank God and have it accepted, then you do so with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You have been accused maybe in the past of being a name dropper. Well, when it comes to praise, brethren, be a name dropper and drop the only name that is given under heaven whereby men must be saved, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you praise, praise in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by Him. Therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. The second point I want to make is our praise should be continually offered. A godly people will be always praising. That's what it says, doesn't it? Always praising because of what He has done for us. Look at Psalm 69. Psalm 69, I've got enough verses to run us till 2 o'clock. But I'm in deep trouble. Psalm 69. Verses 30 through 32. Look at these verses, though, brethren. This is for your prophet. As I started out, it, you do well that you take heed to what I'm giving you. Verse 30, David said, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullock that hath horns and hoofs. The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. Have you ever wished that you could have pulled something like David and Solomon did for God in offering some great sacrifice to the Lord? Putting a pile of sheep, goats, oxen upon that great 900 square foot altar of Solomon's and having fire come down from heaven and suck it off? Have you ever thought of wanting to give God a sacrifice that would be well pleasing to Him? Well, Paul in the New Testament tells us that we can do it with our lips. David in the Old Testament, which I find most convincing, said, This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullock that hath horns and hoofs. Even under the Old Covenant, God had a greater desire for the use of our faculty of speech than he did for animals being put in an altar because anybody can put an animal on an altar and they can have a heart and a mind that is not in the praise nor worship of God. But it is difficult to continually be lifting up the voice of God in praise. When you're depressed, how well do you praise? Praise will be one of the best antidotes for your depression. Look at Psalm 104 and verse 33. A word on continuing in such praise. Psalm 104 and verse 33. I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. How much have you praised this last week? How much have you praised God? You say, well, I'm driving down the road when I'm sitting in a meeting at the office, when I'm at the table, wherever I'm at, I'm thinking about praise to God. 
big deal. So what? It is not acceptable. Third point. The praise that is well-pleasing to God in Hebrews 13, 15 is not praise you do with your heart. It is not praise you do in your mind. It is praise you do with your lips. It is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. Praising God in your heart may be nice, but it is not the well-pleasing sacrifice of Hebrews 13.15. The well-pleasing sacrifice of this text is that done with the lips. And if you read the Psalms, and I have so many verses, and I am plagued this morning, wishing I could run through them all with you again. But I'm going to call on your memory to remember what God calls that instrument that dangles between your jaws. It is your glory because He created it for His glory and it must be used. It is verbal praise that God wants to hear. We just read in Psalm 69 that it is better than an offering of an animal on an altar. And the next verse said, The humble shall hear thereof and be glad, and your soul shall live. Verbal praise not only lets God hear it, not only shows a degree of effort greater than what we can do in our heart and mind, a degree of humility, because we may look like fools to the rest of the world, but it also encourages and strengthens the heart of others around us. Men and phlegmatics do not like what I'm saying. If you ever preach to men or teach men on how to have a good marriage, on the importance of verbal affection to their wives, and I'm a man, so don't sit there thinking that I'm some perfect husband. When you preach to men about loving their wives properly and the importance of verbal affection, men love to think to themselves, well, I love her. I work hard for her every day. I provide for her. I come home to her. I've been faithful to her. I do love her. Actions are, speak louder than words. A man is known by, even a child is known by his doings. Well, bless your heart. I wonder why God just didn't save us and leave this book unwritten in heaven. A woman craves and a woman needs and a woman deserves lots of verbal reassurance and affection. And men balk at it. She knows I love her. Well, then why are you so backward? And why are you so resentful of telling her? I fear that maybe there's a problem if you can't tell her. And then phlegmatics, afraid to ever open their mouths and speak boldly, think, well, I do praise God. I love God. I adore God. I worship Him in my own way. I don't need to look like a fool opening my mouth. God knows my heart. God doesn't care what's in your heart in this text nor does He care what's in your heart in 98% of the Psalms. He cares what comes out of your mouth. God's given you a glorious tongue to make His praise glorious verbally. The tongue, the lips, and the mouth. I repeat it over and over in the book of Psalms. That is praise that is well-pleasing to God. Some of you may 
You certainly can't prove it, and I certainly doubt it. You may love God, and you may worship Him and reverence Him as much as I do and some of your brethren, but God certainly doesn't know it, and I don't know it, and I stand in doubt of it, and you couldn't prove it, because it's done by outward verbal praise. I will again say this. If action is all it takes, then why didn't God just save us? Why did He write us a book which says, I love you, I love you, over and over and over again? Because He wants to communicate with us. Because two people that go through life just doing for each other without communicating don't have much of a relationship. Communion is fellowship, not of body temperature. Communion is fellowship of soul, and you communicate from soul to soul verbally. And we communicate with God, with our lips, and we're to do that because others hear, and the advantage is then congregationally. Because others hear, and it encourages us, and our hearts live when we hear someone else praising the Lord. Yes, Psalm 4, 4 says to commune with your own heart upon your bed. But Psalm 149 and verse 5 says, I will sing aloud upon my bed. When was the last time you sang in bed? Look at Hebrews 13, 16. But to do good and to communicate forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. The sacrifice of praise with thanksgiving from our lips and the sacrifice of doing good and communicating is our sacrifice is well-pleasing to God. Brethren, the word communicate in verse 16 does not mean you're a good talker. The word communicate in Hebrews 13, 16 is giving from your back pocket to those in need. Communicating of your wealth. You can check that out in Galatians 6, 6, 1 Timothy 6, 18. We should work to be able to give to others. Did you know that Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28 tells us to be diligent in our professional callings in order that you might have to give to others that have need? God has called us to a life of giving, not to a life of taking, not to a life of glorying in our riches, but to a life of giving. And it is that kind of a sacrifice that is well-pleasing to God. We don't have an altar where we can give 120,000 sheep as Solomon gave on one day but we have an altar of a congregation where we can give to those in need. We can do it in this body. We can do it outside this body. We can do it to our enemies. When you give an enemy of yours a, a drink of water at work or get him a cup of coffee and it just about tears your insides out to do it, but you do good to your enemy, you are fulfilling Hebrews 13 and verse 16. And I read... So many times in the Word of God that there will be a day when you stand at the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ when He will take recognition of all of your giving and your doing and your communicating. We don't have an altar in Jerusalem. We have an altar in heaven. The sacrifices that God is looking for are verbal praise. Some of you do not hardly ever open your mouth to praise the living God before others. You need to work at improving that and using the instruments God gave you again for His glory. I'll ask you the question I began with this morning. Why do you exist? 
Once you answer that question, why does your existence include a tongue? Well, that's so I can buy bread and peanut butter at the store because I wouldn't know how to tell them what I wanted if I didn't have a tongue. God can take care of you without you asking any storekeeper for things. God gave you a tongue to praise Him. Everything He gave you is for Himself because the Bible says the Lord hath made all things for Himself. Use it. Other sacrifices that are well-pleasing to God are doing good and communicating. Don't forget them. May God bless us to do good. May God bless us to communicate our things to others in need. May God bless us to praise Him as we should.